0: Why We Can't Wait, Chapter Two, The Sword That Heals. In the summer of 1963, a need and a time and a circumstance and the mood of a people came together. In order to understand the present revolution, it is necessary to examine in more extensive detail the psychological and social conditions that produced it and the events that brought the philosophy and method of nonviolent direct action into the forefront of the struggle. It is important to understand, first of all, that the revolution is not indicative of a sudden loss of patience within the Negro. The Negro had never really been patient in the purest sense of the word. The posture of silent waiting was forced upon him psychologically because he was shackled physically. In the days of slavery, This suppression was openly, scientifically, and consistently applied. Sheer physical force kept the Negro captive at every point. He was prevented from learning to read and write, prevented by laws actually inscribed in the statute books. He was forbidden to associate with other Negroes living on the same plantation, except when weddings or funerals took place punishment for any form of resistance or complaint about his condition could range from mutilation to death. Families were torn apart, friends separated. Cooperation to improve their condition carefully thwarted. Fathers and mothers were sold from their children and children were bargained away from their parents. Young girls were, in many cases, sold to become the breeders of fresh generations of slaves. The slaveholders of America had devised with almost scientific precision their systems for keeping the Negro defenseless emotionally and physically. With the ending of physical slavery after the Civil War, new devices were found to keep the Negro in his place. It would take volumes to describe these methods, extending from birth in Jim Crow hospitals through burial in Jim Crow sections of cemeteries. They are too well known to require a catalog here. Yet one of the revelations during the past few years is the fact that the straitjackets jackets of race, prejudice and discrimination do not wear only Southern labels. The subtle psychological technique of the North has approached in its ugliness and victimization of the Negro, the outright terror and open brutality of the South. The result has been a demeanor that passed for patience in the eyes of the white man but covered a powerful impatience in the heart of the Negro. For years in the South, the white segregationist has been saying the Negro was satisfied. He has claimed we get along beautifully with our Negroes because we understand them. We only have trouble when outside agitators come in and stir it up. Many expressed this point of view knowing that it was a lie of majestic proportions. Others believed they were speaking the truth. For corroboration, they would tell you, Why, I talked to my cook and she said, Or, I discussed this frankly with the colored boy who works for us, and I told him to express himself freely, he said. White people in the South may never fully know the extent to which Negroes defend themselves and protected their jobs, and in many cases, their lives, by perfecting an air of ignorance and agreement. In days gone by, no cook would have dared to tell her employer what he ought to know. She had to tell him what he wanted to hear. She knew that the penalty for speaking the truth could be loss of her job. During the Montgomery bus boycott, a white family summoned their Negro cook and asked her if she supported the terrible things the Negroes were doing, boycotting buses and demanding jobs. "'Oh, no, ma'am. I won't have anything to do with that boycott thing,' the cook said. "'I'm just going to stay away from the buses as long as that trouble is going on.'" No doubt she left a satisfied audience, but as she walked home from her job— on feet already weary from a full day's work, she walked proudly, knowing that she was marching with a movement that would bring into being non-segregated bus travel in Montgomery. Jailing the Negro was once as much of a threat as the loss of a job. To any Negro who displayed a spark of manhood, a Southern law enforcement officer could say, "'Nigger, watch your step or I'll put you in jail.'" The Negro knew what going to jail meant. It meant not only confinement and isolation from his loved ones, it meant that at the jailhouse he could probably expect a severe beating. And it meant that his day in court, if he had it, would be a mockery of justice. Even today, there still exists in the South and in certain areas of the North the license that our society allows to unjust officials who implement their authority in the name of justice to practice injustice against minorities. Where in the days of slavery, social license, and custom placed the unbridled power of the whip in the hands of overseers and masters, today, especially in the southern half of the nation, armies of officials are clothed in uniforms, invested with authority, armed with the instruments of violence and death, and conditioned to believe that they can intimidate, maim, or kill Negroes with the same recklessness that once motivated the slave owner. If one doubts this conclusion, let him search the records and find how rarely in any southern state a police officer has been punished for abusing a Negro. Since nonviolent action has entered the scene, However, the white man has gasped at a new phenomenon. He has seen Negroes, by the hundreds and by the thousands, marching toward him, knowing they are going to jail, wanting to go to jail, willing to accept the confinement, willing to risk the beatings and the uncertain justice of the Southern courts. There were no more powerful moments in Birmingham episode than during the closing days of the campaign when Negro youngsters ran after white policemen asking to be locked up. There was an element of unmalicious mischief in this. The Negro youngsters, although perfectly willing to submit to imprisonment, knew that we had already filled up the jails and that the police had no place left to take them. When for decades you have been able to make a man compromise his manhood by threatening him with a cruel and unjust punishment, And when suddenly he turns upon you and says, punish me, I do not deserve it. But because I do not deserve it, I will accept it so that the world will know that I am right and you are wrong. You hardly know what to do. You feel defeated and secretly ashamed. You know that this man is as good a man as you are. That from some mysterious source, he has found the courage and the conviction to meet physical force with soul force. So it was that, to the Negro, going to jail was no longer a disgrace, but a badge of honor. The revolution of the Negro not only attacked the external cause of his misery, but revealed him to himself. He was somebody. He had a sense of somebody He was impatient to be free. In the past decade, still another technique had begun to replace the old methods for thwarting the Negro's dreams and aspirations. This is the method known as tokenism. The dictionary interprets the word token in the following manner. A symbol, indication, evidence, as a token of friendship, a keepsake, a piece of metal used in place of a coin, as for paying car fare on conveyances operated by those who sell the tokens, a sign, a mark, emblem, memorial, omen, When the Supreme Court modified its decision on school desegregation by approving the pupil placement law, it permitted tokenism to corrupt its intent. It meant that Negroes could be handed the glitter of metal symbolizing the true coin and authorizing a short-term trip towards democracy. But he who sells you the token instead of the coin always retains the power to revoke its worth and to command you to get off the bus before you have reached your destination. Tokenism is a promise to pay. Democracy in its finest sense is payment. The Negro wanted to feel pride in his race. With tokenism, the solution was simple. If all 20 million Negroes would keep looking at Ralph Bunch, the one man in so exalted a post would generate such a volume of pride that it could be cut into portions and served to everyone a judge here and a judge there, an executive behind a polished desk in a carpeted office, a high government administrator with a toehold on a cabinet post, one student in a Mississippi University lofted there by an army, three Negro children admitted to the whole high school system of a major city. All these were tokens used to obscure the persisting reality of segregation and discrimination. For a decade, the hard struggles had culminated in limited gains, which, if they advanced at all, crawled sluggishly forward. Schools, jobs, housing, voting rights, and political positions, in each of these areas, manipulation with tokenism was the rule. Negroes had begun to feel that a policy was crystallizing, that all their struggles had brought them merely to a new level in which a selected few would become educated, honored, and integrated to represent and substitute for the many. Those who argue in favor of tokenism point out that we must begin somewhere, that it is unwise to spurn any breakthrough, no matter how limited. This position has a certain validity, and the Negro freedom movement has more often than not attained broad victories which had small beginnings. There is a critical distinction, however, between a modest start and tokenism. The tokenism Negroes condemn is recognizable because it is an end in itself. Its purpose is not to begin a process, but instead to end the process of protest and pressure. It is a hypocritical gesture, not a constructive first step. I have gone into the Negro's resentment of tokenism at some length, for I believe that analyzing his feelings about it will help to elucidate the uncompromising position he takes today. I think it will explain why he believes that half a loaf is no bread. I think it will justify his conviction that he must not turn back. As I write, at the end of the first long season of revolution, the Negro is not unmindful of or indifferent to the progress that has already been made. He notes with approval the radical change in the administration's approach to civil rights and the small but visible gains being made on various fronts across the country. If he is still saying not enough, it is because he does not feel that he should be expected to be grateful for the halting and inadequate attempts of his society to catch up with the basic rights he ought to have inherited automatically centuries ago by virtue of his membership in the human family and his American birthright. In this conviction, he subscribes to the words of President Kennedy uttered on June 1st, 1963, only a few months before his tragic death. We are confronted primarily with a moral issue. It is as old as the scriptures and is as clear as the American Constitution. The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities. Those who do nothing are inviting shame as well as violence. Those who act boldly are recognizing right as well as reality. For a hundred years since emancipation, Negroes had searched for the elusive path to freedom, They knew that they had to fashion a body of tactics suitable for their unique and special conditions. The words of the Constitution had declared them free, but life had told them that they were a twice-burdened people. They lived in the lowest stratum of society, and within it they were additionally imprisoned by a caste of color. For decades, the long and winding trails led to dead ends. Booker T. Washington, in the dark days that followed Reconstruction, advised them, let down your buckets where you are. Be content, he said in effect, with doing well what the times permit you to do At all. However, this path, they soon felt, had too little freedom in its present and too little promise in its future. Dr. W. E. B. Du Bois, in his earlier years at the turn of the century, urged the talented 10th to rise and pull behind it the mass of the race. His doctrine served somewhat to counteract the apparent resignation of Booker T. Washington's philosophy. Yet in the very nature of Du Bois' outlook, there was no role for the whole people. It was a tactic for an aristocratic elite who would themselves be benefited while leaving behind the untalented 90%. After the First World War, Marcus Garvey made an appeal to the race that had the virtue of rejecting concepts of inferiority. He called for a return to Africa and a resurgence of race pride. His movement attained mass dimensions and released a powerful emotional response because it touched a truth which had long been dormant in the mind of the Negro. There was reason to be proud of their heritage as well as of their bitterly won achievements in America. Yet his plan was doomed because an exodus to Africa in the 20th century by a people who had struck roots for three and a half centuries in the new world did not have the ring of progress. With the death of the Garvey movement, the way opened for the development of the doctrine which held the center of the stage for almost 30 years, This was the doctrine consistently championed and ably conducted by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People that placed its reliance on the Constitution and the federal law. Under this doctrine, it was felt that the federal courts were the vehicle that could be utilized to combat oppression, particularly in southern states, which were operating under the guise of legalistics to keep the Negro down. Under brilliant and dedicated leadership, the NAACP moved relentlessly to win many victories in the courts. The most notable of these established the right of the Negro to participate in national elections, striking down evasive devices such as the grandfather clause, white primaries and others. Beyond doubt, the doctrine of change through legal recourse reached flood tide in the education decisions. Yet the failure of the nation over a decade to implement the majestic implications of these decisions caused the slow ebb of the Negro's faith in litigation as the dominant method to achieve his freedom. In his eyes, the doctrine of legal change had become the doctrine of slow token change and as a sole weapon of struggle, now proved its unsuitability. At the time of this growing realization, During the mid-50s, Negroes were in the grip of a crisis. Their movement no longer had a promising basic doctrine, a detailed and charted course pointing the way to freedom. It is an axiom of social change that no revolution can take place without a methodology suited to the circumstances of the period. During the 50s, many voices offered substitutes for the tactic of legal recourse. Some called for a colossal bloodbath to cleanse the nation's ills. To support their advocacy of violence and its incitement, they pointed to an historical tradition reaching back from the American Civil War to Spartacus in Rome. But the Negro in the South in 1955, assessing the power of the forces arrayed against him, could not perceive the slightest prospect of victory in this approach. He was unarmed, Unorganized, untrained, disunited, and most important, psychologically and morally unprepared for the deliberate spilling of blood. Although his desperation had prepared him with the courage to die for freedom if necessary, he was not willing to commit himself to racial suicide with no prospect of victory. Perhaps even more vital in the Negro's resistance to violence was the force of his deeply rooted spiritual beliefs. In Montgomery, after a courageous woman, Rosa Parks, had refused to move to the back of the bus, and so began the revolt that led to the boycott of 1955-56. The Negro developing a campaign against that city's racial injustice was based in the churches of the community. Throughout the South, for some years prior to Montgomery, the Negro church had emerged with increasing impact in the civil rights struggle. Negro ministers with a growing awareness that the true witness of a Christian life is the projection of a social gospel, had accepted leadership in the fight for racial justice, had played important roles in a number of NAACP groups, and were making their influence felt throughout the freedom movement. The doctrine they preached was a nonviolent doctrine. It was not a doctrine that made their followers yearn for revenge, but one that called upon them to champion change. It was not a doctrine that asked an eye for an eye, but one that summoned men to speak to open the eyes of blind prejudice. The Negro turned his back on force, not only because he knew he could not win his freedom through physical force, but also because he believed that through physical force, he could lose his soul. There were echoes of Marcus Garvey in another solution proffered the Negro during this period of crisis and change the black Muslims, convinced that an interracial society promised nothing but tragedy and frustration for the Negro, began to urge a permanent separation of the races. Unlike Garvey's prescription, the Muslims appeared to believe the separation could be achieved in this country without a long sea voyage to Africa, but their message resembled Garvey's in another respect. It won only fractional support from the Negro community. Most of those to whom the Muslims appealed were in fact expressing resentment for the lack of militancy which had long prevailed in the freedom movement. When the Negroes' fighting spirit soared in the summer of 1963, the appeal of the Muslims declined precipitously. Today, as I travel throughout the country, I am struck by how few American Negroes, except in a handful of big city ghettos, have even heard of the Muslim movement, much less given allegiance to the pessimistic doctrine. Yet another tactic was offered the Negro. He was encouraged to seek unity with the millions of disadvantaged whites of the South, whose basic need for social change paralleled his own. Theoretically, this proposal held a measure of logic. it is undeniable that great masses of Southern whites exist in conditions scarcely better than those which afflict the Negro. But the rationale of this theory wilted under the heat of fact. The need for immediate change was more urgently felt and more bitterly realized by the Negro than by the exploited white. As individuals, the whites could better their situation without the barrier that society faces in front of a man whose racial identification by color is inescapable. Moreover, the underprivileged Southern whites saw the color that separated them from Negroes more clearly than they saw the circumstances that bound them together in mutual interest. Negroes were therefore forced to face the fact that in the South they must move without allies, and yet the coiled power of state force made such a prospect appear both futile and chaotic. Fortunately, history does not pose problems without eventually producing solutions. The disenchanted and the disadvantaged, the disinherited seem at times of deep crisis to summon up some sort of genius that enables them to perceive and capture the appropriate weapons to carve out their destiny. Such was the peaceable weapon of nonviolent direction action, which materialized almost overnight to inspire the Negro, and was seized in his outstretched hands with a powerful grip. Nonviolent action, the Negro saw, was the way to supplement, not replace, the process of change through legal recourse. It was the way to divest himself of passivity without arraying himself in vindictive force. Acting in concert with fellow Negroes to assert himself as a citizen, he would embark on a militant program to demand the rights which were his, in the streets, on the buses, in the stores, the parks, and other public facilities. The religious tradition of the Negro had shown him that the nonviolent resistance of the early Christians had constituted a moral offensive of such overriding power that it shook the Roman Empire. American history had taught him that nonviolence in the form of boycotts and protests had confounded the British monarchy and laid the basis for freeing the colonies from unjust domination. Within his own century, the nonviolent ethic of Mahatma Gandhi and his followers had muzzled the guns of the British Empire in India and freed more than 350 million people from colonialism. Like his predecessors, the Negro was willing to risk martyrdom in order to move and stir the social conscience of his community and the nation. Instead of submitting to surreptitious cruelty in thousands of dark jail cells and on countless shadowed street corners, he would force his oppressor to commit his brutality openly in the light of day, with the rest of the world looking on. Acceptance of nonviolent direct action was a proof of a certain sophistication on the part of the Negro masses, for it showed that they dared to break with the old ingrained concepts of our society— The eye for an eye philosophy, the impulse to defend oneself when attacked has always been held as the highest measure of American manhood. We are a nation that worships the frontier tradition and our heroes are those who champion justice through violent retaliation against injustice. It is not simple to adopt the credo that moral force has as much strength and virtue as the capacity to return a physical blow or that to refrain from hitting back requires more will and bravery than the automatic reflexes of defense. Yet there is something in the American ethos that responds to the strength of moral force. I am reminded of the popular and widely respected novel and film To Kill a Mockingbird. Atticus Finch, a white Southern lawyer, confronts a group of his neighbors who have become a lynch-crazed mob seeking the life of his Negro client. Finch, armed with nothing more lethal than a law book, disperses the mob with the force of his moral courage, aided by his small daughter, who innocently calling the would-be lynchers by name reminds them that they are individual men, not a pack of beasts. To the Negro in 1963, as to Atticus Finch, It had become obvious that nonviolence could symbolize the gold badge of heroism rather than the white feather of cowardice. In addition to being consistent with his religious precepts, it served his need to act on his own for his own liberation. It enabled him to transmute hatred into constructive energy, to seek not only to free himself but to free his oppressor from his sins. This transformation in turn had the marvelous effect of changing the face of the enemy. The enemy the Negro faced became not the individual who had oppressed him, but the evil system which permitted that individual to do so. The argument that nonviolence is a coward's refuge lost its force as its heroic and often perilous acts uttered their wordless but convincing rebuttal in Montgomery, in the sit-ins, on the Freedom Rides, and finally in Birmingham. There is a powerful motivation when a suppressed people enlist in an army that marches under the banner of nonviolence. A nonviolent army has a magnificent universal quality. To join an army that trains its adherents in the method of violence, you must be of a certain age. But in Birmingham, some of the most valued foot soldiers were youngsters ranging from elementary pupils to teenage high school and college students. For acceptance of the armies that maim and kill, one must be physically sound, possessed of straight limbs and accurate vision. But in Birmingham, the lame and the halt and the cripple could join and did join up. Al Hibbler, the sightless singer, would never have been accepted in the United States Army or the army of any other nation, but he held a commanding position in our ranks. In armies of violence, there is a cast of rank. In Birmingham, outside of the few generals and lieutenants who necessarily directed and coordinated operations, the regiments of the demonstrators marched in democratic phalanx. Doctors marched with window cleaners lawyers demonstrated with laundresses. PhDs and no MS were treated with perfect equality by the registrars of the nonviolence movement. As the broadcasting profession will confirm, no shows are so successful as those which allow for audience participation. In order to be somebody, people must feel themselves part of something. In the nonviolent army, there is room for everyone who wants to join up. There is no color distinction. There is no examination, no pledge, except that, as a soldier in the armies of violence is expected to inspect his carbine and keep it clean, nonviolent soldiers are called upon to examine and burnish their greatest weapons their heart, their conscience, their courage, and their sense of justice. Nonviolent resistance paralyzed and confused the power structures against which it was directed. The brutality with which officials would have quelled the black individual became impotent when it could not be pursued with stealth and remain unobserved. It was caught as a fugitive from a penitentiary is often caught in gigantic circling spotlights. It was imprisoned in a luminous glare revealing the naked truth to the whole world. It is true that some demonstrators suffered violence and that a few paid the extreme penalty of death. They were the martyrs of last summer who laid down their lives to put an end to the brutalizing of thousands who had been beaten and bruised and killed in dark streets and back rooms of sheriff's offices day in, day out, in hundreds of summers past. The striking thing about the nonviolent crusade of 1963 was that so few felt the sting of bullets or the clubbing of billies and nightsticks. Looking back, it becomes obvious that the oppressors were restrained not only because the world was looking, but also because standing before them were hundreds, sometimes thousands, of Negroes who for the first time dared to look back at a white man eye to eye. Whether through a decision to exercise wise restraint or the operation of a guilty conscience, many a hand was stayed on a police club and many a fire hose was restrained from vomiting forth its pressure. The revolution was a comparatively bloodless one is explained by the fact that the Negro did not merely give lip service to nonviolence. The tactics the movement utilized and that guided far-flung actions in cities dotted across the map discouraged violence because one side would not resort to it and the other was so often immobilized by confusion, uncertainty, and disunity. Nonviolence had tremendous psychological importance to the Negro. He had to win and to vindicate his dignity in order to merit and enjoy his self-esteem. He had to let white men know that the picture of him as a clown, irresponsible, resigned, and believing in his own inferiority was a stereotype with no validity. This method was grasped by the Negro masses because it embodied the dignity of struggle, of moral conviction, and self-sacrifice. The Negro was able to face his adversary, to concede to him a physical advantage, and defeat him because the superior force of the oppressor had become powerless. To measure what this meant to the Negro may not be easy, but I am convinced that the courage and discipline with which Negro thousands accepted nonviolence healed the internal wounds of Negro millions who did not themselves march in the streets or sit in the jails of the South one need not participate directly in order to be involved. For Negroes all over this nation, to identify with the movement, to have pride in those who were the principals, and to give moral, financial, or spiritual support, were to restore to them some of the pride and honor which had been stripped from them over the centuries. In the light of last summer's successful crusade, One might ask why it took the Negro eight years to apply the lessons of the Montgomery boycott to the problems of Birmingham and the nation's other Birmingham's North and South. A methodology and philosophy of revolution is neither born nor accepted overnight. From the moment it emerges, it is subjected to rigorous tests, opposition, scorn, and prejudice. The old guard in any society resents new methods, for old guards wear the decorations and medals won by waging battle in the accepted manner. Often opposition comes not only from the conservatives who cling to tradition, but also from the extremist militants who favor neither the old nor the new. Many of these extremists misread the significance and intent of nonviolence because they fail to perceive that militancy is also the father of the nonviolent way. Angry exhortation from street corners and stirring calls from the Negro to arm and go forth to do battles stimulate loud applause. But when the applause dies, the stirred and the stirring return to their homes and lie in their beds for still one more night with no progress in view. They cannot solve the problem they face because they have offered no challenge, but only a call to arms, which they themselves are unwilling to lead, knowing that doom would be its reward. They cannot solve the problem because they seek to overcome a negative situation with negative means. They cannot solve the problem because they do not reach and move into sustained action the large groups of people necessary to attract attention and convey the determination of the majority. The conservatives who say, let us not move so fast, and the extremists who say, let us go out and whip the world, would tell you that they are as far apart as the polls. But there is a striking parallel. They accomplish nothing. For they do not reach the people who have a crying need to be free. One factor that helps to explain why the Negro nationally did not embrace the nonviolent ethic immediately after Montgomery was a fallacious and dangerously divisive philosophy spread by those who were either dishonest or ignorant. This philosophy held that nonviolent direct action was a substitute for all other approaches attacking especially the legal methods that up to the mid-50s had brought such important, decisive court rulings and laws into being, the best way to defeat an army is to divide it. Negroes as well as whites have compounded confusion and distorted reality by defending the legal approach and condemning direct action, or defending direct action and condemning the legal approach." Direct action is not a substitute for work in the courts and the halls of government. Bringing about passage of a new and broad law by a city council, state legislature, or the Congress, or pleading cases before the courts of the land does not eliminate the necessity for bringing about the mass dramatization of injustice in front of a city hall. Indeed, direct action and legal action complement one another. When skillfully employed, each becomes more effective. The chronology of the sit-ins confirms this observation. Spontaneously born, but guided by the theory of nonviolent resistance, the lunch counter sit-ins accomplished integration in the hundreds of communities at the swiftest rate of change in the civil rights movement up to that time. Yet many communities successfully resisted lunch counter desegregation and pressed charges against the demonstrators. It was correct and effective that demonstrators should fill the jails, but it was necessary that these foot soldiers for freedom not be deserted to languish there or to pay excessive penalties for their devotion. Indeed, by creative use of the law, It was possible to prove that officials combating the demonstrations were using the power of the police state to deny the Negro equal protection under the law. This brought many of the cases squarely under the jurisdiction of the 14th Amendment. As a consequence of combining direct and legal action, far reaching precedents were established, which served in turn to extend the areas of desegregation. Another reason for the delay in applying the lessons of Montgomery was the feeling abroad in the land that the success of the bus boycott was an isolated phenomenon and that the Negro elsewhere would never be willing to sacrifice in such extreme measure. When in Albany, Georgia in 1962, months of demonstrations and jailings failed to accomplish the goals of the movement, reports in the press and elsewhere pronounced non-violence resistance a dead issue. There were weaknesses in Albany, and a share of the responsibility belongs to each of us who participated. However, none of us was so immodest as to feel himself master of the new theory. Each of us expected that setbacks would be a part of the ongoing effort. There is no tactical theory so neat that a revolutionary struggle for a share of power can be won merely by pressing a row of buttons. Human beings with all their faults and strengths constitute the mechanism of a social movement. They must make mistakes and learn from them. Make more mistakes and learn anew. They must taste defeat as well as success and discover how to live with each. Time and action are the teachers. When we planned our strategy for Birmingham months later, we spent many hours assessing Albany and trying to learn from its errors. Our appraisals not only helped to make our subsequent tactics more effective, but revealed that Albany was far from an unqualified failure. Though lunch counters remained segregated, thousands of Negroes were added to the voting registration rolls. And the gubernatorial elections that followed our summer there a moderate candidate confronted a rabid segregationist. By reason of the expanded Negro vote, the moderate defeated the segregationist in the city of Albany, which in turn contributed to his victory in the state. As a result, Georgia elected its first governor pledged to respect and enforce the law equally. Our movement had been checked in Albany, but not defeated. City authorities had been obliged to close down facilities such as parks, libraries, and bus lines to avoid integration. The authorities were crippling themselves, denying facilities to the white population in order to obstruct our progress. Someone observed that Samuel Johnson had called parks the lungs of a city and that Albany would have to breathe again even though the air, too, be desegregated. Even had nonviolent resistance been soundly defeated in Albany, the alacrity with which the bells were tolled for it must arouse suspicion. The prompt interment of the theory was not a judicious conclusion, but an attack. Albany, in fact, had proved how extraordinary was the Negro response to the appeal of nonviolence approximately 5% of the total negro population went willingly to jail with that percentage duplicated in new york city some 50,000 negroes would overflow its prisons if a people can produce from its ranks 5% who will go voluntarily to jail for a just cause surely nothing can thwart its ultimate triumph if However, the detractors of nonviolence fell into error by magnifying temporary setbacks in a catastrophic defeat. The adherents of the new theory must avoid exaggerating its powers. When we speak of filling the jails, we are talking of a tactic to be flexibly applied. No responsible person would promise to fill all jails everywhere at any time. Leaders indulge in bombast if they do not take all circumstances into account before calling upon their people to make a maximum sacrifice. Filling jails means that thousands of people must leave their jobs, perhaps to lose them, put off responsibilities, undergo harrowing psychological experiences for which law-abiding people are not routinely prepared. The miracle of nonviolence lies in the degree to which people will sacrifice under its inspiration when the call is based on judgment. Negroes are human, not superhuman. Like all people, they have differing personalities, diverse financial interests, and varied aspirations. There are Negroes who will never fight for freedom. There are Negroes who will seek profit for themselves alone from the struggle. There are even some Negroes who will cooperate with the oppressors. These facts should not distress no one. Every minority and every people has its share of opportunists, profiteers, freeloaders, and escapists. The hammer blows of discrimination, poverty, and segregation must warp and corrupt some. No one can pretend that because a people may be oppressed, every individual member is virtuous and worthy. The real issue is whether in the great mass the dominant characteristics are decency, honor, and courage. In 1963, once again life was proof that Negroes had their heroes, their masses of decent people along with their lost souls. The doubts that millions had felt as to the efficacy of the nonviolent way were dissolved and the Negro saw that by proving the sweeping and majestic power of nonviolence to bring about the beloved community, it might be possible for him to set an example to a whole world caught up in conflict. In the entire country, there was no place to compare with Birmingham. The largest industrial city in the South, Birmingham had become in the 30s a symbol for the bloodshed when trade unions sought to organize. It was a community in which human rights had been trampled for so long that fear and oppression were as thick in its atmosphere as the smog from its factories. Its financial interests were interlocked with a power structure which spread throughout the South and radiated into the North. The challenge to nonviolent direct action could not have been staged in a more appropriate arena. In the summer of 1963, an army brandishing only the healing sword and nonviolence humbled the most powerful, the most experienced, and the most implacable segregationists in the country. Birmingham was to emerge with a delicately poised peace, but without awaiting its implementation, The Negro seized the weapon that had won that dangerous peace and swept across the land with it. The victory of the theory of nonviolent direct action was a fact. Faith in this method had come to maturity in Birmingham. As a result, the whole spectrum of the civil rights struggle would undergo basic change. Nonviolence had passed the test of its steel in the fires of turmoil. The united power of Southern segregation was the hammer. Birmingham was the anvil.